Welcome back to the KPO podcast. I'm your host, Jagisha. And this week on the podcast, I have two amazing authors. I have Victoria Christopher Murray and Murray Benedict, and they are going to be talking about their latest collaboration, The First Ladies. Welcome to the podcast. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. Well, so to begin with, uh, tell us about the book. What is The First Ladies about? Well, The First Ladies is about the world-changing friendship between a woman you probably have heard of, First Lady uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, and a woman that you maybe have not heard of, but but should, and we hope everyone does by the time they're done reading this book, knows very well, and that's Mary McLeod Bethune, um, a civil rights activist and educator, and the way in which these two women became very, very close friends during an era of segregation and bonded together to lay the foundation for the civil rights movement. And what drew you to this particular story? Well, it's very interesting because um, when we wrote our last novel, uh, The Personal Librarian, we found out that people were very interested in a character, Belle de Costa Green, um, who was passing um, for white in order to keep her position or to secure that position with J.P. Morgan. Uh, we found that people loved talking about her, but really were very interested in our friendship, um, the interracial friendship and partnership of two women who had to not only um, kind of navigate through racial issues in the book, but all the racial issues that were going on around us in the country. Mm-hmm. And we decided with the second book that we wanted to bring forth some of those issues and situations and circumstances that we had. And we were able to do it through their story, through history. We found a story that is very similar to ours. Not that we're changing the world the way these women are, <laughs> but women who had to oh, yeah. navigate the women who had to navigate through issues and still maintain a best friendship. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like you two are changing the world because we're getting to learn about these ladies that we don't hear about much in history. So I think it's important, uh, especially for uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, who I did not know much about at all. I'd heard the name, but very little. Mm Yeah, I, I've known about Mary McLeod Bethune since I was about eight years old when I discovered that there were famous people in the world who were no longer with us. And she was probably the very first person um, that I discovered that way. And I, the thing that impressed me at that point um, was not only that was she a civil rights activist, but she had her own college. And I was eight. I figured one day I could have my own college too. Uh, but as we were uh, writing this book and I really got to know her, She was just amazing. She was a force and uh, she changed things. She never took, she never accepted no. She always found a way, even if she had to do it herself. Yeah, yeah. And the number of hats she wore, I mean, throughout the uh, book as she's (laughs) taking on new, uh, you know, positions. It was amazing how she, time management was a big (laughs) thing with her, like how she did it all. Right. We could really learn from Mary McLeod Bethune and her many hats, that's for sure. So how did you two uh, meet and how did the collaboration start with the first book, uh, The Personal Librarian? 
So, it, you know, it started, well, it started with my uh, discovery, uh, not discovery, my coming across Valdecosta Green. Um, even though I was not meant to be a commercial litigator in New York City, that's what I was for a really long time. And I knew it wasn't the right career for me. It wasn't what I was called to do. Um, and so I would kind of sneak out during my long work days and visit the cultural institutions in New York. And no surprise, one of my favorite places was the Morgan Library, where Belle DaCosta Green not only worked, but created the collection. And one day, several decades ago, when I was there, I happened to meet a docent who told me that this magnificent institution and, and really world-class collection of rare and priceless manuscripts was not just built by J.P. Morgan, but was also built by this remarkable woman, Belle DaCosta Green, I started to think about her story and writing her story, but it wasn't until, um, gosh, over a decade later that we really learned for certain that she was a Black woman passing as white. When I first discovered her, people really didn't know that, that I knew that Belle deserved to have her story told by a Black woman as well. She had hidden her real identity in the shadows for her whole, almost her whole life, and I'm a writer of fiction and I can imagine a lot of things, but I cannot imagine what it would be like then or now to be a Black woman in our country. And it was around that time that I read one of Victoria's books, one that really everyone should read, called Stand Your Ground, in mm -hmm. which she examined the terrible problem of the killing of young Black men um, by police officers in our country. From She told it from the perspective of the women. And as I read this book, it was a contemporary story. I just thought I she's almost in her in a different sort of way coming to coming at the same issues and questions and stories that I am I wonder if she'd ever be interested in exploring the story of Belle DaCosta Green with me and so through our agents I reached out to her and I got a proposal from um, Marie and I it took me a while to read it and get into it but once I did, I knew I wanted to be full on in this project. So then I am curious, uh, what type of primary documents were you able to access for this book? Did you have uh, did you have the letters that the two ladies were writing to each other? You know, it's interesting that despite the fact that these two women were prominent women, right, their story that as friends really has not been explored to any great extent before. And so we were digging into places that that people, it doesn't seem as though they've really dug around before. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking for not just their stories, but the way in which their stories intersected. We looked, you know, original source material is always the place that we that we are happiest and most elated to discover. For my part, I kind of went through Eleanor's archives. Um, you know, there are collections of her letters in a variety of institutions around the country, especially, of course, the FDR library. And it was in those institutions that um, I kind of dug into um, all these old letters that could only be accessed on microfiche. So I dusted off the microfiche machine at my local library, which hadn't been used for like 20 years, and spent weeks pouring through those until we came across um, some letters between the two women and between them and other um, individuals like Walter White. Mm -hmm. And it was through that that we were able to start to stitch together a narrative of at least part of their relationship. 
And Victoria had, you know, a, a different experience as she kind of dove into the world of Mary McLeod Bethune. I was able to actually go to Bethune-Cookman University uh, because that's where her home was, right on the campus. I, I knew the president there. So not only did I get a tour of the campus and speak to people who actually um, they're on the campus now still carrying on her legacy, but I also had a chance to read a self-published book that her grandson, who's a major character in this book, had written about his grandmother called Mother Dear. Mm -hmm. And it was so good because I was getting, Marie and I were able to work with firsthand accounts of some of the things he saw and heard and said and her favorite dessert and her interaction with Eleanor. And, um, and then his daughter, he had just passed away, but his daughter I had a chance to sit down with, which is not something that I think you really want to do in historical fiction, but for this, they were very excited about it. Very nice. So now how do you approach your writing? Now, do you each just write the the viewpoints of the two different ladies? Because um, I know the book is written from, you go from Eleanor to Mary, Eleanor to Mary, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I would say that um, in many ways we approached it as we did the personal librarian. You know, we we dis fully discussed every aspect of the arc of the story, the big picture, the narratives, the themes, and then we would break it down in chunks of chapters. Um, and yes, we would each of us take the sort of first draft of the Eleanor or the Mary storyline. But once we had finished those chapters, we would um, switch them. And we would each edit them with sort of our own strengths and our own perspectives um, to make sure that the story was not only seamless, but um, but really uh, had a very full approach to the, to both of their stories. Now, the one thing that you both are that was mentioned in the book was the um, the lynching uh, ex uh, art exhibit. And I actually went and looked up some of the paintings that were mentioned. So I just wondered, could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I found the paintings incredible. Yeah, they were so powerful, weren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that was one of the things, I remember when we were first um, speaking about lynching because it was a very important project to Eleanor and Mary. And so we knew we had to have it as part of the book. And so there are too many pictures on lynching. You know, there are too many photographs, there are too many articles, uh, but it was important for both of us. A lot of them I had actually seen and knew about for years. Um, and it was important to, for both Marie and I to see the same photos and to discuss them. And because it was just such an important part of the story where FDR had to make a very hard moral decision on what to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned the art exhibit. We, when we found out about that art exhibit, which um, was a very real thing, as you know, something that Walter White put together when Mary and Eleanor and him started to have, weren't able to have the success that they'd hoped for in um, getting FDR to publicly back the Costigan Wagner bill, the anti-lynching bill, you know, they were kind of in, in, in a similar vein to what Victoria and I are trying to do, they were trying to reach people's hearts and minds in a different way. If they couldn't get the legislation, maybe they could reach people through art, through a different means, which, of course, is what we try to do through through our books. 
And when we found out about this art exhibit, and of course, as you know, you can go down the rabbit hole and see the images. There are mm-hmm. exhibit um, there are exhibit guides and galleries. It, we found, in addition to the photographs of lynching, we found these artistic renderings of lynchings and the impacts of lynchings to be so powerful. Mm-hmm. And th- this was an exhibit that both Mary and Eleanor went to, and it was it felt to us like a unique opportunity to explore the many ways in which we can try and connect and make change through art over, over these racial issues. Yes, definitely. So now this book is set during the great depression and I don't think a lot is written in history as to how the great depression affected African-Americans. So, and I think they were affected more than, you know, than, other people. So I just wonder, could you talk a little bit more about that? You know, it's so interesting to say that that because there's a saying in the African-American community, when America gets a cold, uh, Black people get pneumonia. And so that the depression was really an example of that. While unemployment was high, reaching high numbers that we had never heard of in this country of like 20% and Um, approaching maybe 25% in some areas. In urban areas, there were some cities where unemployment for Black men was approaching 90%. And uh, so the the effect uh, was that now we have all of these people unemployed, who gets help first or who gets help at all? And we were still in a time of Jim Crow and segregation the congressional leaders from the South, the Southern Democrats, didn't want to spend any money, any effort on people that they saw who who they believed were lesser than they were. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was really hard, but FDR made the effort to get some of the New Deal programs um, to become part of the African-American agenda. And Eleanor and Mary did their level best to make sure that <laughs> um, that Black um, interests, needs, which, as you mentioned, were desperate in many cases, were being addressed by the New Deal because the New Deal didn't necessarily necessarily encompass their their needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, would you say that Eleanor changed the role of the First Lady, and in terms of becoming more involved in issues and and legislation in a way? Gosh, she certainly tried. I mean, I think, you know, when she, she was probably the most reluctant first lady ever. She Mm -hmm. had in, in the years before FDR re-entered politics, you know, he had stepped back from politics because he had polio, was very focused on walking, on walking again. She had taken that opportunity to create a life of her own. You know, she became, she kind of returned to the social issues that had been her passion as a young woman before family life and being a politician's wife took hold. And she was working in so many ways in politics and large issues for women and children. She was had a school. She was a teacher. She she was doing so much and it was such a fulfilling independent life for her. And she was fearful that becoming the first lady of New York in the United States would make that impossible for her. But she kind of took advantage of the void in actual rules for being a first lady in scope mm-hmm. of what that, mm-hmm. that role means. And she carved out this unique role for herself. But I'll tell you, in many ways, Mary McLeod Bethune was right there at her side the whole way. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. I know we're out of time. So thank you for the time and also for writing this book. I mean, I this was incredible and I learned so much that I hadn't known before. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. We're glad. Yes, that's our goal. Thanks for having us today. Yep, absolutely. That's our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next week when we talk to best-selling author Andrew Ritker about his latest novel, Hope. Until next week.